Good evening, Valley Church. Like Michael said, it's really good to see everybody. We are so privileged to gather as God's people and have, have the freedom, have the freedom to exalt His name, to seek His face, to study the Word together. We're just so blessed in our country and here in our city tonight. So thank you for being here. Thanks for making it a priority. You know, I've been thinking lately about the idea of taking a deeper look. It's really kind of amazing to consider how many things in life we can't discover unless we take a look beyond the first glance, giving our time, giving attention to go deeper. And no pun intended, but one realm that comes to mind is the ocean. Can you get my pun there? Anyway, deep ocean. Anyway, any of you guys watch The Blue Planet, that documentary about the ocean? Anybody? Okay. If you haven't, please do. It's, it's really incredible and stunning to see uh, the kind of photography that that documentary presents of the vast variety of, of animals, of plants, of colors, of really weird creatures, honestly, that we would never see unless we took a deeper look in the sea. Okay, I'm just kind of on a roll. Anyway, taking a deeper look. Um, on a more personal level, on a, on a closer level, we can all do this. How, um, our bodies, our physical bodies, through the wonders of medical science, we have the capacity to take a deeper look at our physical bodies. How many of you have ever had an x-ray? X-ray, let's just see a show of hands. Okay, we know what I'm talking about. Beyond x-rays, CT scans, MRI, ultrasound, heart rate monitor, blood tests, kind of countless avenues that can help us take a deeper look at our physical health. Right now, I would like you to take a look at your left hand. Take a good look at your left hand and your wrist. And just think to yourself, what do I see there, my left hand and my left wrist? And now we're going to pop a, a picture up on the screen of an x-ray, ta-da, of a left hand. And I don't know if you can notice this or not, but just in our wrist alone, there are eight bones. And if we did a total count, 27. I don't know about you, but when I look at my hand, I do not see eight bones in my wrist, 27 bones in my hands, and just think of all the things we can do with our hands. God has done 27 bones per, and we wouldn't know that unless we took a deeper look. So you may think to yourself, okay, Leanne, the ocean and my hand, how does that get us to the Bible? It really will, I promise. And because from my perspective, the Bible text we're studying tonight, which is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, it really requires a deeper look. Because at first glance, at least in my opinion, it's very strange, maybe even disturbing. And honestly, when I've read it in the past, I've basically skipped to the last verse, the, the happy ending of the story. And that is not good Bible study um, methodology. I'm not proud of it. But honestly, the interaction between Jesus and the woman in this text, uh, this woman was deeply troubled. And, and Jesus' response to her, it's, it's been troubling to me. So I've done a deeper study, which we're going to share in tonight, and trust God to give us his insight, his mind, as Michael was saying, the mind of Christ on this passage that can be a little bit difficult to understand. So I'd like to pray, and then we'll read Matthew 15, 21 through 28. 
Father, we do thank you that you promise by your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. And so we humbly and yet confidently come to you tonight and ask you and believe you to give us your mind on this text as a church family and then each of us individually. God, you see us tonight. You know what we're bringing with us tonight. Would you take your word, God, and bring what only you can bring? We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Matthew 15, 21 through 28, and I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Then Jesus went, out, Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Whoa. Do you see what I mean? Like, what? I was very glad to discover a great message by Tim Mackey. He is a professor at Western Seminary in Portland. He's the co-founder of the Bible Project, which is, you've heard a lot about here at Valley Church. A extremely well-studied and qualified um, Bible expert. Even Tim Mackey, he calls this account, quote, such an odd story. Such an odd story. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. It's tricky to fit this account into the predominant narrative of Jesus that we've studied so far, where Jesus is typically very consistently compassionate and attentive and, and kind toward people who are hurting, people who are desperate. And as we move forward this evening, I'm going to ask that we would explore this passage section by section, not just jump to the happy ending like I have done in the past, that we would wrestle with rather than dismiss the parts that are, that are hard, that are uncomfortable, and consider how perhaps a deeper look at this text can impact our understanding. So we'll begin with an important context clue um, because it's vital in Bible study to consider what appears before and after a key passage. And verse 21 begins, then Jesus went out from there. Is that on the screen? Julia, can we get that on the screen? Or you know what? I guess I didn't ask for that. I'm sorry. It shouldn't be on the screen. My bad. Anyway, <laughs> there's the whole thing. <laughs> then Jesus went out from there. And Kristen told us last week about there, where Jesus had been previously, and there, it had not been pleasant, all right? Jesus had been criticized by the Pharisees and the scribes 
um, which had prompted Jesus to give a real in-depth teaching related to what constitutes true righteousness. Jesus, he had confronted the Pharisees and, and said, or scribes. He had basically said what they were doing was the opposite of what God would define as true righteousness. So that was uncomfortable. It was controversial. And so the scripture says Jesus now is going out from there. So let's take a look at a map, and that'll give us just a little sense. And I know it's tiny, tiny up there. But if you see about so the big water, that's the Mediterranean Sea. The little blue, other little piece there next to that red section, that's the Sea of Galilee. And up on the upper left of the Sea of Galilee, there's a tiny word that says Gennesaret. Trust me on this. It says Gennesaret. That's where Jesus was when he'd had that interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes and saying, what you're doing is the opposite of what God requires. So then Jesus decides to go all the way up into that golden area. I hope you can see the T-Y-R-E up in there. Um, it's close to the sea. It's about 35 miles. And when you consider they weren't going by car or bus or even a bicycle, it was a long journey, 35 miles. Jesus wanted to get quite a ways from there. He went to Tyre and to Sidon. He wanted a significant change of location. And the thing about Tyre and Sidon is that scholars note that this region, these cities, um, they, were, they were highly immoral. They were marked by great injustice, even child sacrifice. They were not Jewish areas whatsoever. Old Testament prophets had even pronounced God's judgment against the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And yet this is where Jesus chose as his, his next destination, his next location. So then not surprisingly, the woman that's coming to him with this great need, she's not Jewish. She's from the region, so she's a Gentile. She's not of Jewish background. In light of the culture, this woman's boldness, it was shocking on more than one level. Because first of all, as a woman, she was directly addressing a man, which simply was not done. And then second, the racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and in particular the region of Tyre and Sidon, it was severe. This tension was, was um, long-standing and extremely severe. The people of this area were regarded by the Jews as you know, heathen and, and definitely lower class. The Jews wanted nothing to do with these people. And yet this woman, this mother, her courage was born of desperation. She didn't just timidly approach Jesus saying, excuse me, excuse me, could, could you help me? No, she cried out to him, and even her wording was really unexpected. She had not been raised or trained in Jewish ways. She wouldn't have known the Old Testament prophecies, and yet she addresses Jesus as Lord, son of David. This is the title that Matthew noted in the first chapter and the first verse of his gospel, Son of David, a distinctly Jewish title that had been prophesied way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made a covenant with David that has established an everlasting kingdom from his throne. And so that is why one of the titles for Jesus is Son of David. But how she knew this title, we have no idea. It is not noted in the passage. However, there is a clue in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, where we also find this account. And in Mark, chapter 7, he says, quote, that she had heard of Jesus. She had heard about him. 
Most likely, news of Jesus' miracles by now was spreading near and far. She had heard of Jesus, but we still are just not totally sure how she knew to call him Lord, Son of David. Most, most likely, she had heard about him word of mouth, not any kind of formal training. But her words, this woman's words to Jesus, as we see in verse 22, Matthew 15, 22, they are heart-wrenching. This is, this is the core of a mother's heart for her child. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. I don't know if it could get much more desperate than that. In another biblical text, demon possession is specifically described. Manifestations of violence, self-harm, blindness, muteness, many other manifestations, all of which are extremely troubling. Most certainly, this daughter's life, as well as her mother's and their family's, was tormented because of this demon possession. In light of her, her desperation, Jesus' response is strange, to say the least. Again, even troubling, at a first glance, quote, he answered her, not a word. From there, the disciples take it upon themselves to manage the situation, imploring Jesus just to send her away. She's likely causing a disturbance. She's also of a social and ethnic group. They don't, they don't want anything to do with this woman. So they're like, Jesus, get her out of here. She's crying after you, crying after us. And Jesus' next response also seems strange and troubling. So after silence, the next thing Jesus says is, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I, I, I'm finding a disconnect. I, I don't understand this. A desperate mother and a Jesus who was silent and now saying, I'm sorry, I was only sent to the Jews. And she knows she is not Jewish. And interesting to note that as we look to Scripture, to interpret scripture, which is just a, a really powerful foundational principle of Bible study, look to scripture to interpret scripture, we find that Jesus had in fact already granted the request of a non-Jewish person, even though he's right now saying, I'm sent to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Back in Matthew chapter eight, Jesus encountered a Roman centurion who pled for healing on behalf of his servant. And Jesus, in fact, granted that request. He healed that servant for that Roman centurion. So Jesus had departed from that overall scope of his mission to the Jews. And like the woman here, the centurion noted in Matthew chapter 8, his faith was named as higher than that of the Jews. Jesus' calling beyond the Jews was prophesied in the Old Testament, so we know that part of the reason God sent Christ was for a scope beyond the Jewish people. However, at this point, his primary focus is what he calls the lost sheep of Israel. And even just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 10, when he sent his disciples out to minister in his name, he said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there's, there's a time frame, there's a progression, a sequence that Jesus is overall adhering to. 
So he, he says this to this woman, and then the scripture says she, yet she persists with worship. She's not letting go of this. Verse 25, then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. She worships him. She calls him by the name of Lord, with great reverence and, and respect. Lord, help me. She is not to be dissuaded. And now, ah, and perhaps what we might view as the most troubling response, Jesus says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. At this point, I think we could all join in a collective question. What? Could you say that with me? What? What? Come on, we can be honest here. Jesus, we are not following. I'm not following. How can this response possibly align with what we know of Jesus as the healer and the redeemer? Referring back to insights again from a scholar Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, these little dogs that Jesus mentioned were most likely similar to the pets that many of us have in our home. How many of us have a dog that lives in the house, in our, ho- in our home? Anybody? Raise your hand. Let me just see how many people have a dog that lives in the house. Okay, a few of you, right? We've had Cocker Spaniels in the past. We don't have one now, but we've loved those little dogs. <laughs> we just have. And you know how the dog that lives in the house, when you sit down for a meal, the, the dog is often just kind of like either sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, or just kind of meandering about, hoping for some kind of scrap to fall down to the table, from the, from the table? This is, what Je- this is the kind of picture that Jesus is portraying here. It's not a derogatory kind of thing. It's still just not making a lot of sense. Um, as a side note, if you'd like to hear Tim Mackey's full teaching on Matthew 15, his message is called The Other Side of the Lake. If you remember the, the, um, the map we saw there, referring to Jesus' time or the different sea seafront areas, The Other Side of the Lake by Tim Mackey. If you want to Google that and have a more in-depth treatment of the passage, that's where to find it. Okay, so back to our conversation about Jesus' response and, and the little dogs. So, you know, we might take offense at Jesus using this term dog in light of this whole context, this whole situation, but scholars really believe that what he was doing here again, he's referring to the order of his ministry, the sequence, the progression that God had established for him during his time on earth, to the Jews first, and then eventually to every nation. Matthew chapter 28, very end of the Gospel of Matthew in the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the nations and make disciples. So we know that's going to be the scope for Jesus. However, that Matthew 28 is quite different than Matthew 10, where Jesus told the disciples, only go to the Jewish people. So Jesus is in the middle of this progression, this sequence. And and scholars believe that this word picture Jesus is using here about the dogs, it's more of a parable. It's more of an illustration. It's not a value judgment. It's not a name calling. It's, It's a parable rather than a pronouncement, as in... It wouldn't be right for me to give the lunch I make for my grandkids, Nora, Jack, and Scout. It wouldn't be right for me to say, kids, come to the table. I'm going to give the lunch to Mozzie, the dog, first. That just wouldn't make sense. And so 
that this is a parable. It's about progression and sequence. You know, have to look deeper to kind of get a sense of all of that. But, oh, oh, does this stop this mama? Oh, no, it does not stop her. But she persisted with respect. Yes, Lord. Yet, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And at that moment, Jesus now departs from this order he had uh, defined, and he says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This little girl that had been severely demon-possessed, she is made whole. She is healed right now. And in the original language, when Jesus is commending this mother's faith as great, the word there, uh, the original language for great is mega. So Jesus is saying to this desperate mother, you have mega faith. You have mega faith. You have great faith. He's, he's not only commending her, he's healed her daughter. My goodness. My goodness. A short text, but, but so much there, so much depth to discover. And, and I know there's way more. And, and it's just a reminder to me that when we study Scripture, history and context is vital. It, it's so important to take the time and give the, my attention to study beneath the surface look. So now that we've taken that deeper look, our question becomes not just what, but now what? So what? How in the world does this passage bridge to our lives as Jesus followers in our time and our place? I'd like to reflect on three questions which I find helpful no matter what passage I may be studying. Pretty simple questions. First of all, what does, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? And what does it tell us about how God would have us relate to him? What does it tell us about God, ourselves, and how God would have us relate to him? I would say in the answer to the first question, what does it tell us about God? It tells us, reminds us, that God's ways are not our ways. His picture is bigger. We will often not understand Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, is just a classic statement of the, of the disparity between God's ways and our ways. Quote, he, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as, high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I've thought about the fact that the Lord didn't just say my, my thoughts and my ways are higher, but he gave us such a vivid word picture. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's the span of, my, of God's thoughts versus our thoughts. And I, I often just put God in my little, my little box of thinking. That's not true. That's not right. And I have to have a right perspective. Who is God? Who is God? You know, at times, and I would imagine we've all experienced this, at times, God will be silent just as Jesus was. His initial response to this woman, he answered not a word. And sometimes it feels like we pour out our heart and soul and God is silent. 
at times, his answers will not align with what we are asking. My daughter is demon-possessed. I was only sent to the lost house of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My daughter is demon-possessed. It's not right to give the children's food to the little dogs. There's going to be times with what we ask will simply not align with what, how God answers us. However, there will also be times when we will be astounded and we will be astonished and we will be overwhelmed. Her daughter was healed at that very hour. This little girl, at that very hour, she was healed. God's ways are not our ways. Second question, what does this passage tell us about ourselves? I believe this passage, one of the things it tells us about ourselves is that we will have deeply painful chapters written into our life stories. This passage reminds us that we will have some deeply painful chapters written into our life stories. This mama and this little girl and this family, this is a deeply painful chapter that they are dealing with. I imagine the writing of this pain of these painful chapters has already happened to some degree for all of us and most likely it will happen again. That's the reality of life on planet Earth. Jesus himself said to us, "In the world you will have tribulation." That's quite a word. Tribulation. It, it will happen. Jesus, he's very clear. But I love that he you know, backs that back to back with the next phrase, but be of good cheer. We're going to have these deeply painful stories, but Jesus has overcome the world. He will carry us through. He will carry us through, but we will have these deeply painful chapters. And then third, what does this passage tell us about how God would have us relate to him? And again, there's many, many aspects that we can uh, glean, and I imagine that the Holy Spirit will continue to work this in our lives, but one that I see is that we are called to persevere in faith and prayer based upon who God is. We're called to persevere in faith and prayer based upon who God is. And this precious Gentile mama, she shows us this truth so clearly she continues to declare Jesus as Lord, as Son of David, worship him, worshiping, imploring his help, despite his initial responses. She perseveres in faith and prayer based upon who Jesus is. That, my friends, can be very hard, right? To persevere when God is silent when his answers do not align with what we are asking, to continue in faith and in worship based upon who he is. And, you know, the Bible gives us a lot, many other examples of this very thing, and I love especially an example from Mark chapter 9, verse 24. This is another situation of a parent pleading for a child. It's a father this time pleading on behalf of his son. And in the conversation with Jesus, this dad says, quote, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because 
this persevering faith, it's not something we can just kind of muster up within ourselves. It's something we pray for, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives it to us. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I can't, but you can. And we see this woman persevering based on who God is. Like you, I have prayed a lot of prayers. Some of them, hallelujah, pretty quickly. Those are my favorite, aren't they? When we pray and God says, yep, done. I really like that. Other prayers, they've they've taken weeks, months, years. In some cases, and I'm hoping a few of you will nod your head, the more I've prayed, the worse things became. Anybody? Mm Mm-hmm. Happens. And I imagine like you, I still have some deep places where I'm waiting. We are still waiting. Yet in all of it, even in our desperation, we are called to hold fast by faith to God's character as stated in his word. And I appreciate that in the scriptures, God gives us many definitions of who he is that we can hang on to. I'd like to share just one, which is the first time in the Bible where God describes himself. It's during a conversation with Moses, which is kind of amazing to think that God would have a conversation with Moses, but he did. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God says of himself, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. This is some of God's character, that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering. In other words, he's patient. He's abounding in goodness and truth. This scripture definition, it's reflected in a profound quote from a long time ago by a man named Charles Spurgeon. And maybe you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was a powerful teacher and pastor of a 15,000-member church in London. It was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's back in the mid to late 1800s. And Charles Spurgeon, he was well acquainted with sorrow and with grief in his own life and in the life of his congregation. And this is what he observed, quote, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. This quote has meant a lot to me. It's meant a lot to me. And friends, this persevering prayer, it provides a refuge and a rest in the not yet. It keeps us safe. Persevering prayer keeps us safe in the not yet. Because our trials, our tribulations, they are either going to draw us closer to God or they're going to distance us from his presence. There is no neutral ground. And the enemy of our souls, he wants us to believe the lie that the Lord is unloving. 
if you don't take anything else away from tonight, the enemy of our soul, he wants us to believe the lie that the Lord is not loving. Because if we believe that God is not loving, we will, or most likely, pull away, pull away, pull away, which then takes us to the place we are most vulnerable to fear, despair, anxiety, bitterness, and more. The things that will only, only cause harm. Because, and this has been a little phrase that's been helpful to me in the last year, pressing in <laughs> enables us to press on, okay? Pressing in to Jesus, Lord, Son of God, I worship you, I implore you, I believe you, I don't know how you're going to act, but I know you're good, I don't know what you're going to do. That enables us, my friends, to press on. It's a powerful powerful dynamic that God invites us to, that he instructs us. And right now, I just want to mention a, a resource. I, books are just a big help to me is how I process many things. I've read a lot of books related to this topic of when God doesn't answer like I wish he would or when he is silent, and things aren't changing and they just keep getting harder. This has been a book that's been helpful to me in the past year. I like it because it's little. Sometimes when we're overwhelmed, a big book is like, I don't think so. Uh, but a little book I can deal with. Even a short title, why? That's the title, why? And the subtitle says, Trusting God When You Don't Understand. This book is written by Anne Graham Lotz. She's the daughter of Billy Graham. And she's an excellent Bible teacher. And I love the fact that on the third page of this book, if you can see, it's all, it's all blank except for just a few words which say, dedicated to those who have unanswered prayers. Why? So it's a resource. If you're looking for some fresh infusion of hope, fresh strength for your faith, it's one to think about. I'd like us to take one more look at our hand, if you would. Take a look at your left hand. Since we saw it on the screen there, we won't see it right now, but just look at it again and, and think about when we saw that x-ray, how we could we could perceive, we could understand so much more than we could grasp with that surface look. And similarly, that we can realize that God is working in response to our faith based upon who he is, far beyond what we may see right now. When we can't trace his hand, that we would trust his heart. As we close, I'd just like to allow a few quiet moments for each of us to reflect on prayers we are still praying, maybe on a few we've given up, to ask ourselves, what would it look like to be people of great faith? Coming to Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Counselor, coming to Jesus once again in worship and in trust, bringing him our fervent requests.
Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, you see beneath the surface. You see the places that are wounded. You see the places that are weary, the places where we are desperate. We are desperate, oh God. We come to you again, corporately, individually, this evening. We bring you every care and concern. We are honest and yet hopeful because of who you are. We thank you for your past help. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. You are able and you are kind. And you are able to do far beyond what we can imagine or we can think. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.